This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Stephen Schwartz, author of the novel The Tenderest of Strings. In a novel, that becomes one of the most essential questions. Where is it going to be set? And what, how is that setting going to influence what happens? And what can happen there that wouldn't happen somewhere else because it's a small town? Or what would happen there because it's a big town that couldn't happen in a small town? We'll be back with Stephen Schwartz after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview, then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. 
Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Stephen Schwartz, author of the novels Therapy and A Good Doctor's Son and four short story collections, including Little Raw Souls. His fiction has received the Colorado Book Award, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, the Sherwood Anderson Prize, and two O. Henry Prize Story Awards. He lives in Fort Collins, Colorado. His new novel is called The Tenderest of Strings and tells the story of Reuben and Ardith Rosenfeld and their two sons, who move from Chicago to a small town in Colorado seeking a new life and reinvention in the West. Reuben buys the town's sole newspaper, and Ardith stays home and copes with the task of fixing up their older home, which suffers from major disrepair. Meanwhile, their older son Harry is a troubled adolescent who won't talk to his parents about the truth of his life. We began the discussion with Stephen Schwartz talking about how bringing this novel to print was a decades-long journey. I think I started decades ago, maybe, and I could never get it right. I actually had two agents who tried to sell it, and there was always something missing from it. And I knew that it was to do with the structure of the book. And one day, my wife, as you could see from the acknowledgments in the back, she was so uh, integral to keeping my faith in this book. She said, well, can you give it another try? And I took it out. And I must have rewritten more than a good third of the book. And I added some critical elements to the plot, as well as introducing a new character. And once I did that, everything just seemed to click. I think structuring a book, a novel, is so much harder than doing a short story in the sense that you have all these points of view. You have to make sure all the character arcs are fully developed. You have to deal with the plot elements and make sure that they're not overshadowing the character ones. But at the same time, there are things happening in the book to make us interested in the characters. And originally, I just went and took a real left turn in this book and had a kidnapping in it, had some kind of climbing of a big, of long peak. I just couldn't find my way home in it until I introduced these new elements. So it taught me a lot, I think, about sometimes books just need to gestate at different rates. Some books, some stories come very quickly, and others take a long time for whatever reason. So I am actually happy, and this is not a rationalization or sour grapes, that I didn't get it published in those previous forms because the three main elements that needed to work together, the voice, the characters, and the plot, they just were not in sync. The tenderest of strings is told in multiple characters' viewpoints. It's like a very close third to them. It's not like in first person. 
But when you were saying that you changed the structure, I was wondering if that was something that you added later. But the gist of the story is that Ruben and Ardith uh, just moved to this town in Colorado called Welton, which I believe is a fictional town, but it's near Fort Collins. And he comes from Chicago, buys the newspaper there, and he's a newspaper man. And she is not working at the time, and they have two kids who are about high school and middle school age kids. And Harry is their elder. And he is, um, he maybe has ADD, maybe has depression, maybe has anxiety, but isn't really into being medicated and is really difficult because he won't be medicated. And he has a lot of incidences at school that he won't share with them. So they feel really lost. And then the younger kid is much more easygoing and follows along. And Ardith ends up having an affair with the town doctor. And Reuben doesn't know this for a while until she becomes pregnant. At the same time, at a party later, the doctor is hit in a hit and run. And so it becomes a little bit of a mystery to find out who killed him. And it's really a family story about how how can Reuben and Ardith survive or not their marriage And how can Harry become more comfortable in his skin as the story goes on? So I'm curious about the interface between the germ of the story, which probably had some kind of emotional juice for you, and then dealing with the structure, which is so much in some ways less personal, although that is how you end up being able to convey that emotion. But do you remember the emotional nugget since you've reworked this so much? There isn't one kind of emotional nugget here uh, or germ in a Henry James sense. Um, What I did know was that Harry, the adolescent boy you mentioned, uh, who just seems to elude a diagnosis, but has a lot of behavioral problems, that he was going to be the emotional fulcrum of the book. And that anytime we got into his point of view, we were going to be at that very feeling level. And uh, and so it's in this book, rather than say, oh, this is event happened to me or anything like that. Um, It was more like I was fixed on Harry and what is Harry's problem? And is this kid going to survive his his young life? And what do parents do when they have uh, a teenager like this who seems to just, just kind of elude any kind of explanation for his behavior. I was very attached to him. And it's interesting because he's one of the point of view characters along with Ruben, Ardith, and Louisa, uh, Mexican-American girl. But even though he's, as I said, just kind of emotional fulcrum, we don't spend a lot of time in his point of view. And it's somewhat opaque. First of all, because he's young, he doesn't know himself. He can't give us a lot of exposition about his you know, life or anything like that. But, you know, also, you know, for me, it was a matter of trying to preserve his mystery as a character uh, and his, who he is. And, and yet, every time I wrote his point of view, 
I just felt there was a lot of um, energy electricity there uh, whenever he was on the page in that way. Um, you're right, this family is in trouble. They're falling apart. Um, and they've come out to try and find a new life here in Colorado in the way that Colorado or the West, I think, has traditionally uh, promised reinvention to people. And instead, there are problems that have been uh, dormant uh, while they've been living in Chicago all their lives rise to the surface, as happens when people make, make a big change sometimes. And um, the cracks were there, the fissures were there to begin with, but they just break open when there's enough of a you know, catalyst, a move, a new job, new career, anything like that. You know, Harry just gets worse when he comes out. And that kind of powered me through, like, let me find out what happens to this particular character. The story opens with him being rushed to the hospital because he has a tooth knocked out and he's bleeding. And we see the very different reactions of his mom and dad, which are also interesting. Like the dad just wants to get out of him what happened because he won't tell. And the mom is trying like a softer, like, hey, you know, we just care about you. It's okay. And so we immediately see the tension between those two as well as how hard it is to parent. And we understand how difficult it is for them to deal with this child, that the child won't reveal information to you as a parent. What do you do? And we get sort of in his voice. This is true dialogue where he's saying, can't you just accept that I'm different? Does everybody have to be normal in the same way? I like the way I am. And how do you take this? I think he's maybe 13 year old who says this, I, I just wonder if you remember writing this and what you were thinking about. I, I was thinking about how difficult it is when you have a child and they're resistant to um, what you think is the best therapy, therapy for them, the best uh, kind of treatment in their lives, and you can't get anywhere, and you're not even sure if you're right. I remember in that somewhere around there, Reuben is taken aback by how wise Harry seems at that moment about himself and, and how, how little power they have. My wife and my kids are grown and uh, they're quite doing quite well for themselves, but our daughters certainly had a rough adolescence. And there was a point where I couldn't get through. And I thought, have I lost her for good? Um, it was it was an uncomfortable period, and now that we found out some things later that had happened to her that were responsible for that, but at the time it was just a, a brick wall. And I am sure I couldn't have written this book unless I had had that experience, you know, raising my, my own children. So, yeah, I mean, Harry also he's very canny about what's going on in the family dynamics, and. He understands that his father has these huge expectations for him that he's never been able to live up to. And part of these expectations are a result of Reuben's younger brother dying, who was also named Harry when Reuben was a child. And Harry, the brother, was a gifted child. He was the golden boy. He was the one who everybody looked up to. And Reuben then names his son Harry, 
um, it not only in tribute to his dead brother, but out of a sense of loss and even guilt that Reuben himself has survived and the brother who everybody admired and was so charismatic, uh, you know, is the one who has died. And Harry unconsciously knows this somehow, uh, that his father wants him to be, to basically uh, be his dead brother and go on. And he can't do it. And his style of parenting, as you mentioned, is to just push and push and push. And Ardeth is, you know, is the mother. She's trying to do the opposite, but neither of them seem to be able to reach Harry. Was there anything, as you parented your own kids through all this, that changed for you in the writing because you saw your own kids, like you saw problems re- resolve themselves because it took so long to write it that it informed the fiction? Yeah, I remember this very clearly. We were in, uh, in Costa Rica, and my son was 15 years old, and we had gone on a on a bike ride, and we were on a very busy road, and then we were coming back to this eco resort we were staying at, and my son was zooming ahead of me on his bike, and I was struggling to get up the hill. I'd been both winded by this ride below, and also just a, cars whizzing by. And, and at some point, he, he stopped his bike and he got off and he waited for me. And he said, Dad, are you okay? And there was this transitional moment inside me. I probably, you know, it, was, it was very incidental. It was, didn't really mean much to him. But to me, it was like, oh my gosh, this is where things change. This is where he takes care of me. Or he, he, he starts to even conceive of it in, reflexively. And this is where I, I suddenly acknowledge that I'm not always going to be taking care of him. So the course of Harry's life in the book changes. And at, at some point, he grows up. And I won't give away the ending, but there's a very significant gesture there at the end of the book that we take Harry from the rebellious, unhappy, depressed, possibly suicidal adolescent to another individual. And having written the book, to answer your question directly over these decades, I think Harry went in a different direction because I saw something in my own son maturing and being, you know, that person who one day will probably take care of me. So tell me a little bit more about this structure uh, challenge that you faced and how that had some interplay with the with the story itself. I mean, it sounds like you did change things from mountain climbing to kidnapping and you I'm not sure if Louisa was the the new character that you brought in, but she is um, a young Mexican-American girl, as you said, who goes to school with Harry and ends up working for Ardith. What wasn't working and what was your aha moment? I can say this, that I speak just for this one book. There are infinite ways to structure a novel. I'm thinking of Rachel Cuss' autofiction and the unique structure there, or a book I read recently on Earth, were Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vuong, um, 
it works by poetic association. Um, and so, but I knew this was a book that had a linear format to it. And you're right, the whole character of the uh, Louisa wasn't there and the hit and run wasn't there. So what I had was more of a domestic novel, but it, it hadn't reached out to other issues, social issues. And once I was able to do that, um, I was able to construct this plot that eventually at the end would bring all these characters, to, characters together in some way. Um, that the death of, of Tom and who did it would draw out this small town onto a larger canvas. You know, that's not necessarily the way it's going to be for every novel, but uh, this one definitely needed this other element that was really lacking. And I, I think when you're writing a book, um, you, you get stuck and you wonder what what's holding it back here. And one of the things I realized about this book is that there were, there were all these secrets in the book. Ardeth had a secret about their affair. Harry knows about the affair. Harry gets his eyes, eyebrows shaved off later and won't talk about who did this to him. Uh, Louisa is gay and has a secret and can't tell her family. Also, she knows about her father. Uh, the character Ellen knows who killed Tom but has a secret. And, you know, secrets really power a book. Um, and yet you've got to get them all working together in some way to make them coordinated in some manner that they're not working against each other but they're, they're working on behalf of that structure of the book. I think you really have to know when you're writing a novel, you know, what are the secrets here and how are they lining up and how are the characters going to interact as a result of them? What are the characters going to hold back and what are they going to reveal? And how is this information that's revealed at any moment going to expose some of those secrets or keep them as secrets? Now, you know, I'm not thinking about all this as I was writing, but when I decided that uh, Louisa had to be part of the book and her father and, and her conflict and everything, that kind of tied these secrets together and braided them together in some ways. And that is more the, uh, more the underlying infrastructure of the book than anything. Secrets can be very powerful, you know, because then you're, you're regulating the, the tension by when you release the revelation of the secret. Yeah, and secrets usually have a victim. I don't mean that they always have, but somebody is at the other end of that secret somehow. And, uh, and, and so you've, you've got to take that into consideration when you're writing, like who is at the other end of the secret, not just who holds the secret and who has the power in this particular moment. As a result of having that secret, so yeah, that is something that you're working with. I think much more in a novel than you are necessarily in a short story. Do you think the power dynamic of information and secrets is something that you're conscious of when you're writing? 
Yes, you know, in this case, you know, this the shifting power at any given moment. While Ardith is having the affair, she feels quite powerful. And then once Tom dies, she loses that power and she feels just the guilt of, of what she's done and the loss. Reuben, who has ironically gotten himself in shape as a result of Tom's death without knowing that Tom has been an artist's lover, has turned into a runner. He's he thinks that sex is great with Ardith. The sex that she's having out of kind of guilt with with uh, him is a result of her affair. And then when he finds out, he completely deflates and and loses all that. Harry gets uh, finally, you know, there's a, a a line in the in the book about um, uh, about love where. Um, it's Harry is um, he doesn't he goes to see a therapist and um, the therapist tells him you don't know how to take in love at all um, and that he's almost allergic to it so when he finally is able to find somebody to love he kind of overdoes it and he pushes the person away. And whatever power he has felt during that time, where he's finally learning to both take in love and give it out, is just lost. So you're always losing or gaining power at any, at any moment as a character. And in some senses, that's what keeps the reader involved. I mean, think of, you know, a great Russian novel, where you, you feel potent at one moment and then something happens and it's the opposite for you. And that is life. Yeah, you know, very much so. I mean, nobody consistently holds on to all the power that they feel. They may get it back, but it's just not something that it, you can sustain and you have to kind of reconcile yourself to it. That's so hard to be human. <laughs> yeah. And I, I feel in many ways that in this book, I've really put these characters through it. Um, um, I was thinking about the title because somebody asked me about it, The Tenderest of Strings. And um, it's, it's interesting how many alternate titles I had for the book beforehand. It was at one time called New West. It was called House of Salt. It was called... Uh, the Rosenfelds of the Rockies, which may have been the, the worst title I ever thought of in my life. And then, you know, when I finally did the, the final draft of the book, I still didn't have the right title. And then the phrase just came to me, the tenderest of strings. And I had never heard it before, ever. And this is the thing with titles. Either you get them right away, and they can almost be like a guide through writing the book. Um some kind of compass or something like that, or you don't get them. I'm talking about with short stories too. And you just struggle. You start looking through great quotes to find one. But um, I looked it up and there was only one reference to it about some something to do with music in the 1800s and some kind of symphony. But for me, it was a perfect lens for the story, both for being about the ties that bind in a family, but also this word tender in the sense that 
almost wherever you touch some part of this book, there's going to be a little bit of pain for the characters. There's going to be something tender for them. And so, yes, life is tough. And um, there there is suffering. But, you know, my job was just to create these characters, show them as much compassion as I could, and uh, give them absolutely full lives. And, you know, be, I guess, both as tender and honest as I could with them. You mentioned earlier that when you brought Louisa in, it sort of opened up social issues. So Louisa is Mexican-American, and there there's just some themes in the book about immigrants, about your status as an immigrant, if you're legal or not. There's a whole other bunch of themes around nimbyism, um, not in my backyard, and uh, issues that we're grappling with at the paper. And I want to talk about Ruben for a little while. But when you bring in these social issues into a novel, it makes it bigger. But you also have to be careful, I think, in fiction, that it's not preachy. How did you, yes. how'd you modulate that? Yes, you're absolutely right. You can't be polemical. You can't be didactic about it. It has to fit in first as, as the character. Um, and you can't just say, oh, I'm going to put this issue here in about um, you know, racism or social justice. Um, uh, it, it, and especially today where there's a question of appropriation. I mean, for me, the key is that this person, Louisa and her family, they belong in this novel and they belong in this small town and um, they have to get involved with the other characters in some significant way that makes their place there um, as like it's always been there. So Louisa has to have a relationship with Ardith. Louisa has to have a relationship with Harry. Um, um, you know, her father has to work on this dairy farm. And my job is just to imagine what it's like. Um, and it's pretty hard to write about this area that I live in without writing about, you know, the other populations and other demographics that live here. It wasn't all that long ago that in this Southwest area, I mean, long enough, but where you saw signs in the windows that said no, no Mexicans or dogs allowed. So, you know, there's a history here. And it does come up. You know, I have to be aware of that. And I mean, in a sense, that's part of the, what goes on in the plot because of that fear of what will happen to somebody who's a brown-skinned man if, if certain things are revealed. And Welton is a fictional town, but you live in Fort Collins. It's, it's near Fort Collins. And it is like its own character. Can you talk about creating Welton and why you wanted it to be fictional? Yes, absolutely. When I originally started this, there's a town here in Windsor and Weld County that was more the model of it. But since that time with the explosive growth out here, uh, Windsor has outgrown my conception of Welton. I just knew it was in that area on the front range in northern Colorado, probably in Weld County. And, um, you know, when I first came out here, to, to my job at CSU, Colorado State University. I mean, a lot of these roads that have six lanes now were dirt roads. And 
Um, and so Welton is a town that I, I sort of remember from that time. And that does exist probably, you know, maybe at any moment it's going to become much bigger than what it was. But it's the town that uh, has the coffee shop that doesn't serve fancy coffee drinks, cappuccinos, has the barber shop, it has the ice cream shop, and it has the small newspaper, which Ruben works at. In, in many ways, it's sort of my love affair with these small Colorado towns. It's very easy to picture, and it wasn't hard to do because, um, I, I, I don't know, I, I just can so clearly see these characters uh, in this small town after they've come from Chicago. And the kind of culture shock that is, and how they have to adjust to it, both not only the setting, but as I say, just the culture of it. You know, it's in, when you're writing a short story, you might set it somewhere, but you don't necessarily need to know the setting intimately. Maybe if you're Faulkner, maybe if you're Dora Welty, yes, but it. It can, it's sort of arbitrary sometimes. I've written a lot of stories where, you know, I've set them in my, where I grew up in Philadelphia or out here in Colorado, but what happens in the town isn't that essential. But in a novel, that becomes one of the most essential questions. Where is it going to be set? And what, how is that setting going to influence what happens? And what can happen there that wouldn't happen somewhere else because it's a small town? Or what would happen there because it's a big town that couldn't happen in a small town. Uh, so you you really have to you really have to know that setting as a character in some way. You, you have to see all the streets. You have to have a, a map in your head at any given moment to you know to to know what's going to happen next, essentially. Yeah, and I love that a great way to show this was because Ruben came and he was a newspaper man for the Chicago Tribune and then bought the newspaper there that you get to see the town through newspaper, which is going to be all these strange happenings and fun happenings. Like one of your first details that I loved so much was that his writer, his one writer (laughs) did restaurant reviews of like Burger King and McDonald's. Yeah. Jolene. Uh Ruben comes in. He's the he's the outsider. He's kind of the the grumpy Jewish guy. And uh, you know, uh, Jolene has been working under the old editor Brady Westcott. And Brady Westcott you know, is a local person and has loved everything that Jolene has done, including her reviews of Arby's and all, <laughs> whatever the other restaurants are where she comments on the decor and she gets very hurt when he says, you know, do we really need to review fast food restaurants? But the fact is that's all there is in Welton. So, you know, he's like saying, well, don't, don't even write it. Don't ever write another review again. So tell me about Ruben. He was probably my favorite character. He was, you know, this patriarch of this family. He was kind of thrown into territory he didn't understand. He was dealing with his child. He's running the newspaper with all these crazy characters and trying to find his footing in his life. And he's Jewish in this Western town. What was your first conception of Ruben and then who you really wanted him to be? Ruben is somebody who, unlike 
Tom in the story of the doctor has never been quite comfortable in his own skin. He's, he's an outsider and he carries this burden with him that he's just not been good enough in some ways. And so, you know, he's dutiful, he's dogged, uh, he's in love with his wife. Um, he's unhappy because he can't have this close relationship with his son, but he tries so hard. And um, and at one point in the novel, I think I say uh, about Ruben when Ruben's briefly talking to a, a therapist, and he he says that he thinks he's a little too happy with his. He's been a little too happy with his cynicism all his life, and I think that kind of sort of describes Reuben. He he got set in some way, and yet he is somebody who takes care of other people, and he's the opposite of Tom. Tom, the doctor, is charismatic. He's charming. People love to be with him. They they are flattered by his attention. And he's irresponsible, too, unlike Reuben, who is highly responsible. As I say also in the novel, Reuben, if Reuben's in line behind an older lady who's taking out all her 100 coupons, he lets out an audible groan compared to Tom, who everybody gathers around. Hi, Tom. How are you, Dr. Tom? And everything like that. So, you know, they're entirely two different personalities. I didn't set out to create this dichotomy, but that's just the way it happened. And to me, yeah, Ruben is my favorite character also, because he represents somebody to me who he will be there and he's going to try and better his life in, in some way and better the lives of those around you, around him. And he gets tripped up a lot of the time. He, he is just somebody I could see so clearly when I was writing the book. I keep thinking about something that Toni Nelson said, who I know that you know. When yeah. she teaches fiction, she always says, I'm, I'm not interested in the affair that ruined the marriage. I'm interested in the affair that saved the marriage. Have you ever heard her say that? No, but it's, it's very interesting to me that she wants to know this affair that carries out in a less predictable way, I guess you would say. So yeah, this novel could have gone in a very different direction. Where, um, but the fact that uh, Tom dies and then, without giving the plot away, uh, Ardeth has something that keeps Tom alive in a sense, and um, and they have to, you know, they have to keep going together somehow. Um, Ardeth and Reuben. And um, they have to reconceive their marriage in, in light of it. But, I, you know, I first have to, you know, show what they go through as a result of this, the consequences of it, um, and then bring them out of that in, in some way. Um, as Arif says at one point, there's a different kind of love now after you've had an affair and that she wonders if the kind of scar that it leaves, you can ever re heal from. Um, and that's a lot of what is being worked out in the book. I think is you know, that possibility. 
It's almost, this might be too meta and too far of a leap, but it's almost like your many drafts, like you had a lot of scars on those drafts, but you had to find the way to the ending. You had to find a way to give it the love that it needed so it could be the best book that it could be. Yeah. Thank you. I I think that's true. Um, You know, let, let, let me say some things here, too, about that. Um, in writing a novel, you, you, as I say, you can, you can take so many wrong turns in it. Um, and this novel, for instance, has some comedy in it, too. Um, and I've always been interested in, in that relationship in a novel that is both serious and has comedy. And to what degree you're going to do that. But... I had too much comedy in it in an earlier draft. Um, I had like, and I only realized this the other day when I was looking through an old draft, I had like 60 pages of Reuben uh, trying to bury a dead cat named Mo in the book who doesn't appear in this draft at all. Um, And carrying this cat around in the trunk of his car, getting ice for the cat, just being unable to bury the cat, and obviously being a metaphor for his, his long-lost dead brother. Um, you know, it didn't belong, because it, it was shifting the tone in some way. And I think you have to watch out for that, that you, what direction are you going on, you know, going in here that is, is changing that, that tone of it in, in, a, in a certain way. Some of these moves that I made, as you refer to them as scars, um, they, you know, they were too much about the plot. And we got too far away from, from the characters and, and sort of lost the, the, the thread that way. Um, so, you know, it's, it's hard, but you have to bring the book back to you know, that balance of all these elements. How do you tactically do that? When you have maybe 13 drafts or you've read it so many times or written it so many times and you, I don't know if you've saved like draft one, draft two, and maybe draft two only has a few different scenes different than draft one, but then you want to go back because of all that, those scars. How do you start again? How do you do that? Well, you need, you need somebody to help you, first of all, to point out where something's gone wrong. And, um, and, um, you really need time to set it aside. (laughs) I had too much time here, obviously, but still you have to come back to it in some way where you're reading it almost ruthlessly, uh, with a cold eye. And, um, and, you know, for me, uh, it's been like, okay, where's, where's the heat in this part? If, if I'm passing my eyes over the, and there's no heat, I know something is, is flat and I'm just kind of uh, spinning my, my wheels, as I was saying with that part about, you know, a dead cat for 60 pages. Um, another writer, I think it's Steve Ominous, said, you know, you, you slow down where it hurts. And sometimes you have to find those places in a, in a, in a book. Um, and you know, this, this part hurts. Let me take my time with it. Let me, let me, the pacing is off here. And then you have to figure out too, like, um, you know, what, what is contributing most to the purpose of the book? 
Uh, and you know, if you're gonna any kind of short story or book is always going to be layered with a lot of different uh, elements that are going on. And you know how how are those how are those elements be, being personal at any uh, purposeful at any given moment uh, in in the book? And um, sometimes you you say, look, um, there's a lot of a lot of exposition here. Let me see if I can turn that into a scene. Let me make a, a, a let me make I'll either make a quarter scene out of it, a half scene, or a full scene, just like in music. And we'll see um, if that adds more tension, if that adds more meaning to this moment. Or better yet, here's a long scene. Maybe I could sum this up. In, in, in a paragraph, um, so you know you're you're sort of always playing around, trying to manipulate those elements to get the book to go where it needs to go at at any given moment. It's like I'll take a quarter scene with cheese. Hold the mayo, please. Exactly, you know, or you know, is this flashback really necessary here? How much is it contributing to? to the story and how much is it just bogging down things? I wanted to ask you about endings, just kind of your thoughts about it or how you get there. I mean, the ending of this book, and I'm not going to give it away necessarily, but it could be open for interpretation as to what happens. How do you approach endings or what, what have you learned about endings throughout your career? That's a good question. And here is my short story background coming out. A friend of mine, a good writer named Peter Horner, said that he was talking in one of his stories. It's actually a character says about endings that an ending shouldn't be a conclusion. It should be a horizon. And I, I really like that idea. And you're right. There is something inconclusive about the ending here. And part of that is, again, my background as a short story writer where I like to leave a horizon, but there's another reason for it too. If I had made a definitive conclusion about what happens between the two main characters here, then what you do, what happens is the emphasis and the focus is on the action. Whereas if you don't do that and you leave them in a certain place, you can put the emphasis more on the emotional impact of the moment. So for me, I'm always going to choose that feeling and emotion over something that is conclusive and perhaps reductive. You still want it to have authority. You want it to feel like a door is clicked in some way, but you want the emotion to go on. And the emotion is part of that horizon that I just mentioned in the quote. And you want to leave the reader with that because you know, that's more important than anything is the, you know, the emotional impact, which you, you can't separate from the dramatic impact of the action, but you, you can't just say, okay, that happened, end of story. I just wanted to find out what, what the conclusion was. That's not where these characters are. They're in progress in some ways. Their lives go on. And I'm most interested in getting at that, that deepest gut level of their of their relationship. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, I'm going to read a passage from um, 
a book by Bernard Malamud called A New Life. And uh, the reason I'm going to do that is that there are these books that you've read many years ago. For me, it was 40 years ago reading this book. And they're important to you in some way as a writer. They're like these shadow books that stay with you. And you realize that they have plant seeds in some way. This goes back to an original question you were asking me. And you somehow resonate with something in that book with the characters in some way that you wind up imitating them, not in a very, um, you know, absolute way. It's not like you're trying to rewrite the story or anything, but there's something in the book that you carry around with you. And A New Life is about a man named S. Levin, who in the 1950s moves from Manhattan, where he's lived all his life, to take a job in a place called Cascadia, Oregon, which is really Corvallis, Oregon, and what actually happened to Malaman. And I'm just going to read you this opening passage here. S. Levin, formerly a drunkard, after a long and tiring transcontinental journey, got off the train at Marathon Cascadia toward the evening of the last Sunday in August 1950. Bearded, fatigued, lonely, Levin set down a valise and suitcase and looked around in a strange land for welcome. The small station area, like dozens he had seen en route, after a moment's activity, was as good as deserted. And Levin, after searching around here and there in disappointment, was considering calling a taxi when a man and woman in sports coats, clothes, appeared at the station. They stared at Levin, the man almost in alarm, the woman more mildly, and he gazed at them. As he grasped his bags and moved towards them, they hurried to him. The man in his 40s, tall, energetic, with a rich head of red hair, strode forward with his hand outstretched. And one of the reasons I like that is <laughs> you learn so much in that first paragraph, formerly a drunkard. Um, the man staring at him in alarm, in alarm. and you know that um, he's kind of in this strange place. And uh, how is he going to adjust to it? Who is he? What's the story here? Uh, and you know, Malamud's characters, they're not like Philip Roth characters or anything. They were always falling down, trying to pick themselves up and do good and, and be better in the world. And Malamud was interested in forgiveness. I don't think Philip Roth was ever interested in forgiveness. Malamud's humor was kind of sad humor. It wasn't a lacerating humor of Roth. But Malamud is out of fashion now. Nobody reads him the way they read Roth or Bellow or any of the other Jewish writers. But he was very important to me. He still is important to me because, you know, he's a storyteller. And he, he promise you, promises you he's going to tell you a full story. So I was thinking about that book a lot when I wrote The Tenderest of Strings. And in, in many ways, it's kind of a, a paying homage to it, you know, my, my version. Can you read a passage that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. It's going to be a little embarrassing, but I'll do it. Um, so this is a... The one I'm going to read you is, a, is the published version of a passage from a well-known story of mine called Madagascar. And it's about a, uh, a son and a father who's a Holocaust survivor. And the father has uh, survived the Holocaust, but his whole family has died in it. And he survived the Holocaust by hiding in an oven in Amsterdam for much of the 
much of the war. And now he's a Harvard professor and his son um, is, you know, has taken on a lot of the unconscious sort of uh, loss that his father has experienced. And this is something I write about a lot, is that, you know, the second, the next generation trying to deal with the 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 loss that the former generation has had and doesn't talk about, but is left for that second generation. My father sits with the hiking boots he has brought for this trip out west, laced tight on his feet. They are spanking new, and he has already cleaned them of mud from our climb this afternoon. I take pleasure in seeing him so fond of the mountains, so open to the world out here. You and I could go, I say, together. A nurse could help mother if we went next summer. I will give it some thought, my father says, but I can see that the veil has already dropped, the complex configuration of blank terror that can still scare me with its suddenness, the yearning on his face vanish. He has gone to Madagascar. He empties the coffee he has spilled in the saucer back into his cup. I have made a mess here, he says, replacing the dry saucer underneath. He stands up, pulls down the sides of his jacket. Despite the hiking boots, he is dressed for dinner. Would you like to go for a walk with me, Ephraim? Now, I should say that Madagascar comes up as a place that was going to, and this is true, Hitler had originally an idea just to send the Jews there and to have them ransom and not kill them. So for the father, it's a metaphor, a place where everything could have been different in some ways. And, um, you know, but like in this section, the father's not able to deal with it. And he just, in his mind, goes to Madagascar. But here's, I, everything is the same. Right before I, I say my father empties the coffee he has spilled, in a, in a draft, I wrote this, an added paragraph, not in this final version. My father is silent, sips the coffee brought by Judith, who has left quickly because she knows in advance what I have planned for weeks to say. It is only recently that I can begin to live without shame that I owe you more. He watches me still in silence, and I summon the courage to go on. And I've hated you at times because you could not give to me freely, could not face your own feelings and let me have mine, could not be the father I needed to love me for myself, and would not let me love you. That is absolutely horrible in the sense that it, it's like telling everything that I've shown and that I'm in my way, I was trying to get the message across. And it's one of the things I was talking about earlier about pacing and, you know, compressing and scenes and you know what you take out, but you have to write that anyway. It's like notes to yourself. You you can't not write it. It's it's just that you have to be willing to write it, and then willing to let it go in some ways. Where do you write? I write in my office here at the house, or because I'm a fiction editor of Colorado Review, I sometimes go up to CSU and write there. You know, those are the main places. And the important thing is I. Just try and face the blank page, wherever it is. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I do a lot of cliff diving, ice climbing, axe throwing. Um, you know, the usual thing for me. Um, no, <laughs> that's what other people do around here. I just go for walks. You know, I cook a lot more now during the pandemic. Um, I read. Um, it's, a, it's a quiet life now. <laughs> yes. I thought maybe I, I saw you in the X Games this weekend in the half pipe. Yeah, that was probably me. I just, you know, my alter ego. 
Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show it to my wife, and I have been dependent on her for quite some time. And she's my most passionate supporter and my hardest critic. I was just looking over some uh, an early draft that she was commenting on, and just some random comments were too campy. You know, people don't speak brightly anymore. Seems extraneous. Better check the fashions now. Don't think this is right anymore. You know, she won't let me get away with anything, especially, you know, how my characters are dressed. She's very particular about that. Uh, so, yeah, I have very heavily edited manuscripts by her. and I just trust her a lot. How have you dealt with rejection? Yeah. You know, I think when I first started writing, I thought if I could only get a story published, that would validate me and I, I wouldn't fear rejection anymore. Well, that wasn't true, actually. And then I thought if I only published a book, that would really validate me. But wait a second, it still hurts. And it went on like that. And, and the fact is that you don't really get over it. And one of the problems is that it takes away your power. You felt so potent while you were writing something, while you were in that zone. And then you send it out. And it, you know, it gets turned back. And you, know, you, you feel all the discouragement. And most of us writers are sensitive creatures. So we have a lot of voices in our head already, discouraging voices, maybe from parents, maybe from uh, teachers or anything like that. And I think it just plays on that. And I, I think, too, chemically, writing is such an adrenaline process. You're, you, you're, you're, you're generating so much dopamine and serotonin, and you're, you, know, you're, you, know, you get very excited about sending it out, and then all of that stuff gets depleted. Uh, when you when you get rejected, and I, I think you have to take care of yourself. You, you, you know, meditation, exercise, finding people who believe in you as a writer, uh, a good writing group. Um, but ultimately, you're in it because if you're a literary writer, because it's, it's this it's this marriage of the language and the imagination. And you want that on the page. You want that to sing on the page. And there's something transcendent in you that wants to accomplish that. And that transcendent part, not your ego, not the part that's going to get hurt or is vulnerable to rejection, that's the part you have to believe in that has to keep you going. What is your favorite word? My favorite word recently is liminal, which means barely perceptible just at essentially threshold. It can also mean trans uh, transitional. And the reason I like it is that it, it's, it, it, its meaning is close to subtext. And what you're trying to do with subtlety, subtlety and character in a novel is create a consciousness for characters that's in touch with the mystery of their lives right under the surface. So for me, liminal, besides, besides the fact that it's, it sounds really nice, gets at what I'm always trying to do. Like, I'm, you know, I'm trying to get to that level just below where there's mystery and yet preserve that tension and subtext, you know, so that we feel the drama of what they're saying, but things aren't overly explained or they're not reductive in some way that it's bringing out the deepest meaning 
Thank you so much for your time and being on the show again. I'm so appreciative. Thank you, Mitzi. I really appreciate your doing this. If you like today's show with Stephen Schwartz, author of the novel The Tenderest of Strings, check out our previous interview where we talked about his short story collection, Little Raw Souls. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Evie Wild, Lan Samantha Chang, Thritti Umrigar, and Jacqueline Machard. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.